If I were to ask for a show of hands this morning, I wonder how many of you could honestly say that your life could be described as being peaceful. Please don't raise your hands. Because if you could say that, some of the others sitting around you might um, become angry. <laughs> you know, just a moment ago we sang the words to I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. Verse 1 says, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play. And mild and sweet their songs repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. But the second verse, the author of this poem, who, by the way, was Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, is the one who wrote this, this <coughs> hymn. And if you have not had the chance to see the movie called I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day, I highly encourage you to seek it out over the next couple of weeks and watch it because it is a powerful, powerful movie. But it tells the story of what led up to the writing of this. And he, he lived during the, the Civil War. And this poem was written in 1863, which if you're a history buff, you know that that was right in the middle of the Civil War. And I won't give away all the details of the movie, but he was struggling with all that was going on in the nation and in verse 2, this comes out in such a poetic beauty that, um, just listen to the words again. It says, and in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth. Goodwill to men. Here we are, 160 years later, and we can probably identify with these words very, very easily. You know, we, we sing the song Silent Night, and it talks about sleeping in heavenly peace, as the video showed a moment ago. But do we even know what peace looks like. Well, as we continue our sermon series this morning, um, anticipating Advent, uh, we're going to once again be looking at the prophet Isaiah. So if you want to be turning in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 9, we're going to get there in just a few minutes. But, you know, as we consider prophetic writings, we encounter several hermeneutical challenges and if you're unfamiliar with that word hermeneutics it's simply the art and science of understanding and applying the bible it's a science because there are specific rules that guide us in our understanding of the bible but it's an art in that it is the word of god and the word of god is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Did you realize that that's what this book is able to do? It is not just ink on a page. 
but it is living and active and honestly is a mirror into our souls. Well, in a sermon that I shared just after Christmas three years ago from Psalm 91, I shared this slide that has these three hermeneutic principles on it. You've heard me share these often uh, on these rules for understanding and applying the Bible, but I feel compelled to reiterate them once again this morning. So bear with me if you will. The first rule is that a text cannot mean what it never meant. A text cannot mean what it never meant. If it did not mean it to the original recipients, it cannot mean that today. So we must discover the original meaning to, the, to those that the Bible was originally written to. And then from that we can make application. But a text cannot mean what it never meant. The second is that we must understand a text within its context. We cannot just take a, a few words out of the middle of something and say, oh, it means this, when we really need to understand what is around it. For example, one of the most famous verses in all of Scripture is Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Great verse, and everybody likes to put it on coffee mugs and t-shirts. But what's it actually talking about? If you look at the context, it's talking about learning to be content with what we have. <laughs> so, we've got to understand the text within its context. And then, finally, um, the Bible will never contradict itself. And so, based on these principles, that's how we approach God's Word every time we open it. We must remember, it cannot mean what it never meant. It must be understood within its context, and it will never contradict itself. Now, as we approach Old Testament prophecies, can I just say understanding Old Testament prophecies is hard. <laughs> it's hard. Um... I didn't ask if I could share this, but Joanna's been studying through Isaiah lately. Um, and she said, would you get me a commentary uh, that, that would, would be a good, simple commentary? The good news is, is that I gave her the commentary, and she said it's been great to help her understand. The bad news is I didn't have it as I was preparing this week, so who knows? Uh, we'll, we'll see how I do. Um, Dr. Tim Mackey said this. He said, reading the books of the biblical prophets is challenging. I say it's hard. He says it's challenging. But he has a degree in Semitic languages. So maybe that, that helps. He said they're written in ancient Hebrew poetry and narrative style, which is really different from modern poetry or narrative. He goes on, he says, also, these books assume that the reader has a fairly good understanding of the final two centuries that led up to the tragic end of the Israelite kingdoms. And so what he's helping us to see is that we've got to understand these not just within its textual context, but also its historical context. We have to understand what's going on in history before we can understand the text. 
If you look back at Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1 sets the stage for us. It tells us exactly when this is all going down. It says, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. We know exactly when those kings served. And so we know that this is happening at a specific time time in Isaiah chapter 2 there's a prophetic poem there in the first five verses that addresses the future of Judah and Jerusalem and this poem shows that when God chooses to restore Jerusalem and the family of Abraham all people will be drawn to the kingdom of God resulting in peace it says among all nations so Isaiah predicted that there was going to be a king like his ancestor David that would bring peace to all nations. And then in Isaiah chapter 9, where we'll be looking today, the prophet describes the arrival of this king. And we'll read that in just a minute. Before we do that, I want to remind you about the Advent Reflections reading plan on the YouVersion Bible app. Uh, there's a QR code on the screen, or shortly will be, uh, that you can scan and join in that reading plan. Um, I would suggest if you join the reading plan, um, start on day eight, because that's where we're, we're going. Uh, that's this week. We've already finished the first week, so just jump in on day eight. You can pick up the others later. If you don't scan this now and you change your mind later and want to do it, it's the bottom QR code on your sermon notes page in your bulletin. But I would encourage you uh, to, to utilize this resource. It will help reinforce a lot of the things that I'm talking about uh, this morning and then in the, in the weeks to come. Another resource that I want to take a moment to tell you about is this book. It is called How to Read the Bible Book by Book. Okay? It's by Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. I've had this book for quite a while. Um, it's an excellent companion resource for you as you're reading through your Bible day by day. I want to tell you just a little bit about it. You see the chapters are arranged in Bible order or canonical order. So it starts with Genesis. It ends with Revelation. And um, at the beginning of each chapter or each book you know um, it has uh, some uh, a synopsis here of information about the book it gives you an overview of the book and then on the next section it's called specific advice for reading whatever book this is specific advice for reading Isaiah and it tells you some of these things that you need to know about the historical context or or maybe the way it's written or or whatever whatever now on the screen you'll see that there's a companion book how to read the Bible for all it's worth that's a great book about hermeneutics um, and if you're interested in knowing more about how to understand and apply the Bible um, if you want to go deep this is the book for you if you want to do more of a a simple thing I've written something that's more simple and you can you can use that but we can we can talk about that you can, you can come talk to me later so after it gives us specific advice for reading um, 
Well, you know what? Let me give you an example of some of the specific advice for Isaiah. Uh, here on this, in this book, it says, At the center of Isaiah's story is Israel, redeemed but wayward, stubborn but loved. And it's Yahweh's relationship with them told over and over again by pointing back to the Exodus and pointing back to the Davidic covenant that reveals God's mercy and compassion. Authors go on and say the story of this redemption thus climaxes with a servant Messiah who will redeem both Israel and the nations by dying for them. A story that finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ and the cross. So this prophecy of Isaiah is absolutely pointing forward to what began with the first advent of Jesus or the first coming or arrival of Jesus. Well, just to give follow up on this book, after it does the advice for how to read it, it then gives just little, little bitty sections uh, that you can read that are companion guides uh, to each section of scripture. And so I, if you're interested in looking at this book, I'll be happy uh, to show it to you after the services. I am not going to let you borrow it because this is the only copy I have right now. The good news is you can buy it on Amazon for about 15 bucks. So, um, or used, you can get it even cheaper than that. So if we were going to glance at this section in that book, what we would discover is that Isaiah has been describing the failings of the kings of Judah in chapter 7 and chapter 8 and is now about to describe this future king that was going to bring peace to the world. And so part of what we read last week was from Isaiah chapter 8. And so I want to read those two scriptures again before we get into chapter 9 and our, our main text for this morning. So in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 21 and 22, the Bible says, They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. You remember we talked about being hangry last week? That they were hangry. And when they were hungry, they, were, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. I think Henry Wadsworth Longfellow summed that idea up when he said, there is no peace on earth, I said. But notice what happens. Notice the change when we get to verse 2 of Isaiah chapter 9. The prophet said, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. And then verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice 
and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. With dress, oh, I'm sorry, we'll do this. Thank you. So what we have here today is two main points that I want us to consider. Each of these dealing with the topic of peace. The first is that peace is not just an absence of conflict. Peace is not just an absence of conflict. I think it's important that we take a moment to determine what the differences are between peace as we understand it in the English language and peace as it was understood in a Hebrew or context in the Hebrew language. Um, if you look at Merriam-Webster's definition of peace, you would find a lot of different things listed out there. You know, starting with, it is a state of tranquility or quiet, such as freedom from civil disturbance. Then it goes on, it says, it's a state or security or order within a community. It's freedom from oppressive thoughts. It's freedom from oppressive emotions. It's freedom from conflict and personal relationships. It is a state or a period of time of mutual concord between governments. It's an agreement to end hostilities between those who have been at war with one another. Do you see the pattern that's forming here? When we think about peace, we don't think about it in the positive, but we're thinking about it from the negative point of view. We don't have to deal with all the drama, so we're at peace. We're not at war with someone, so we're at peace. You know, that, that's how we understand it. But folks, that's not how the Bible understands peace. It's not the biblical definition. Biblical peace is about wholeness or completeness. And it was brought forth to earth in the person of Jesus Christ, who is and was the Prince of Peace. You see, the basic meaning of the word peace in the Hebrew is completeness, soundness, welfare, or peace. Do you know what this word is for peace? Shalom. You've heard that word, right? Shalom. You know, uh, it's a greeting in Hebrew culture or Jewish culture. They'll say shalom, shalom. And there's meaning behind that that I won't go into right now. But shalom is this idea of peace. But it goes beyond that. It is completeness, welfare, soundness. Again, Dr. Tim Mackey describes its meaning this way. He says, the most basic meaning of shalom is complete or whole. The word can refer to a stone that has a perfect whole shape with no cracks. It can also refer to a completed stone wall that has no gaps and no missing bricks. Shalom refers to something that's complex with lots of pieces that's in a state of completeness or wholeness. 
You know, as I read this definition, it made me think of Nehemiah. When he heard that the wall was destroyed around the city of Jerusalem and his heart was just in turmoil because there was no peace. There was no completeness. There was no wholeness. And then he went there and they built the wall. Um, you know, the meaning of shalom as used as a verb means to bring peace that's what, that's what Nehemiah did, even though the text doesn't explicitly use the word shalom in Nehemiah. He, he brought peace to Jerusalem because he brought completeness or wholeness to the wall. And so shalom as a verb means something being made complete or something that's being restored or something in the case of human relationships that is being reconciled. So when the scripture tells us we have peace with God, it's talking about our, our relationship has been reconciled with God, but I'm getting ahead of myself. You see, Isaiah here in chapter 9 of his uh, prophecy tells us that the Messiah would bring peace because he is the prince of peace. Do you remember what the angel said when they arrived in the field to proclaim to the shepherds what was going on? Luke 2 tells us in verse 13, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. All of a sudden, in that moment, when the Christ child was born, peace arrived on earth. Well, this was a big deal. The shepherds, when confronted by these angels, uh, they realized it was a big deal. So immediately they went to check it out and find out whether what they said was true. And they discovered uh, when they saw it, when they saw this child was born, they realized what the angels had said was true. Then they went and they told everyone what they had been told and what they had seen. And so this baby grew up. And fast forward about 33 years. And all of a sudden we find Jesus sitting with his followers in an upper room in the city of Jerusalem the night before he was to be crucified. And you know what he said to, to them? He said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Three more times after his resurrection in John chapter 20, uh, he, three more times he reminds his followers that he is leaving peace with them. They have peace through him. Don't forget that you have peace. The apostle Paul 
talks about this piece in, in several of his books, but I don't have time to read them all. I want to just focus on Ephesians chapter 2 for a moment. In Ephesians chapter 2, uh, the Apostle Paul makes it clear that Jesus is the peace of God given to those who believe in him. Ephesians 2.13 says, But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came, it says, and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. The gospel of Jesus Christ was a message of peace. How we can have peace with God. And if we were to look at this whole chapter of Ephesians chapter 2, what we would see here is that he is offering peace to us. And so my question to you today is, have you experienced that peace with God through Jesus Christ? You see, it tells us here in Ephesians 2 that we've been separated from God. And the reason that we've been separated from God is because of our sin. Our sin has separated us. We do what we want. We do what we want when we want. And we are completely selfish by it by our sinful nature and because of that selfishness we are separated from God but God in his mercy has made a way for us to be made whole again to be reconciled to him now folks we do not deserve his mercy we cannot earn his forgiveness but he offers that to us as a free gift we are made whole by grace through faith in jesus christ alone we must trust in jesus and then his grace reconciles us or makes us right with god and it tells us then that we're brought near to god by the blood of christ we cannot forget what it costs god to be able to make us whole and that was the death of his son Jesus Christ. He, Jesus Christ, is our peace, it tells us. He has destroyed the dividing wall of hostility between us and God, and He has made us complete in Him. The wall has been brought down through our faith in Him. We now are reconciled with God. If, and only if, you trust in him as your savior. Folks, if you've not yet experienced this peace that God is offering, you can make that decision today. You'll have an opportunity in a moment. You could come talk to me or you could come talk to me after the service and learn more about that. Or you know what? You don't need me involved at all. You could do it right now, right here where you're sitting. 
If that's what God has put on your heart, that he wants you to trust in him. And be reconciled. And be forgiven of your sins. Then that's what you need to do. I mean, folks, the greatest Christmas present you could ever receive is the gift of new life in Jesus Christ. A life of peace, completely forgiven and made whole or complete. A life of shalom, peace with God. So the second thing I want us to look at this morning is restoring what's broken to wholeness. That's what peace is all about. It's about restoring what's broken to wholeness. Isaiah prophesied here. Let me get back to Isaiah. I'm still in Ephesians 2. Isaiah prophesied here in verse 9 that there would be no end to the peace that is made by the Messiah. The one he had just called the Prince of Peace. He said there will be no end to this peace. This phrase is specifically referring to time. when it, It's not talking about space here, but it's talking about time. Meaning that his peace has continued and will continue to increase forever and ever. There will be no end and it will continue to increase throughout all time. If this is true, and I absolutely believe that it is true because it's written in God's holy word. If this is true, then why do we not experience this peace in our everyday lives? This is what Pastor David was talking about as he led us in worship earlier. The difficulty that, that we struggle with with all of the things that happen in this world that are just terrible. How come we don't experience this peace in our everyday lives? Think back to the video we watched just a few minutes ago. It started out saying, God, when you say peace, what exactly are you referring to? Have you ever tried to find a parking lot? Parking lot, parking spot. You know, um, I usually go to, to Walmart or other stores when everybody else is busy. And those times when I have to go when everybody else is there, I'm just like, this is crazy. Um, there's no peace going on in that. It went on and asked, do you know how hard it is to find this year's most wanted toy? And proclaimed, I can't find peace, God. I don't think I'm going to be able to afford to go home this year. I understand that well. <laughs> you know, in, in 12 years that we served overseas in Asia... Uh, I came home a grand total of four times in 12 years. Um, only once did I come home on my own dime. I waited till the office would pay my way, you know, because I couldn't afford it. You know, I think about uh, students 
uh, who are struggling to get by and they're eight to ten hours away from home. They don't get to go home. They don't have the money. I can't go home. And I'm not good at being alone, it said. How do I quiet the voices in my head? How do I keep from going crazy in the silence? <laughs> the juxtaposition of those two phrases just cracks me up. How can I, how can I uh, quiet the voices in my head, but how can I keep from going crazy in the silence? But isn't that life sometimes? How do I sleep in heavenly peace when I can't even sleep? How is peace even possible in a world that's tearing itself apart? That's how the video began, but I loved how it ended. It went on to show how we can experience peace. And it said, God, remind me that we are your children. Calm my stressed out soul with your peace that passes understanding. Help us stop fussing and fighting. Help us to remember the light in the stable, the prince of peace. Let there be peace on earth, it said, and let it begin with me. You see, folks, peace is something that is only ever internal until it is eternal one day we will experience eternal peace in heaven with God for those who have trusted in Christ and have been made right or reconciled to him someday there will be external peace in eternity but right now the only peace we can hope for is an internal peace and that peace is a peace that we must choose Day by day. Let's look at a few practical bits of advice for experiencing peace. First thing is remember whose you are. Remember whose you are. In Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 through 4, Paul wrote, You have been raised with Christ. Remember that you have new life in Christ because you have been raised with him. So seek things that are above. Set your mind on things that are above. For you have died with Christ, it says, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Remember whose you are. You belong to Christ live that way the second thing is remember how to conduct yourself if you keep going in that same passage of Colossians chapter 3 it goes on then and it says in verse 5 put to death what is earthly in you I actually like the King James there where it says mortify which means literally to you know crucify Put these things to death. What kind of things? Well, it goes on and it gives a whole long list here in verses 5 uh, through 8. And then in verse 9, I'll pick up there. It, it's continuing the list. It says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on 
the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So we have to put off our old selfish desires and we need to put on the things of Christ. We need to live for him. And just in case you didn't know how to do that, that's what verse 12 picks up with. In verse 12 it says, Put on then compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, Put on love and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Now realize I'm not reading the whole thing because I'm, I'm trying to get you out of here a little earlier, okay? He's telling us what we need to do in order to put on Christ. If we will do these things, then the peace of God, notice what it says, let the peace of God or Christ rule in your hearts. And then it goes on and says, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And whatever you do, do all of it in the, for the glory of God. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's how we ought to live. We need to remember how we are to conduct ourselves. Third thing practical advice for experiencing peace is to remember who cares for you. Philippians chapter 4, we've actually been in Philippians chapter 4 for a part of the sermon for the last several weeks. Let me say it once again because it's just so pertinent for us today. Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Society at large deals with anxiety on a level never before seen in my lifetime. God gives us a solution to this. Don't be anxious, but in everything, lift that up to God in prayer. And you know what it says next? If you do that, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds. If we give it all over to God, you know what? Cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. If we'll do that, then the Holy Spirit of God will guard our hearts and guard our minds in Christ Jesus. The next verses there in Philippians 4 go on to tell us what we ought to be thinking about. Things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable. Anything that's excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, then we ought to think on those things. And then he says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, do it. Practice those things, he says. And the God of peace will be with you. Remember who cares for you. And finally, remember what peace cost. In Hebrews 13, verse 20, 
says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. We have this peace with God, but it, it was not cheap. It required the death of God's Son. His blood to cover our sins so that we can be reconciled with God and so that we can be made complete or have that peace with God as a result. He reconciles us by the blood of his son. And once we have that reconciliation with God, then peace in our day-to-day -day lives is an internal decision that we must make. Peace is a state of mind that is able to exist as a result of the grace of God through his son's reconciling work on the cross. We cannot experience peace without Christ. But folks, we can choose, even if we've trusted in Christ, we can choose to live our lives in light of this truth or we can choose to ignore it. The choice is ours as to whether we're going to live in the peace that God offers. And it's a choice that we have to make day by day. That's not being reconciled to God day by day. No, that's not the point. We are reconciled to God by the blood of Christ once. But we choose how we're going to live our lives after trusting in him. We choose how we're going to think. We choose what we're going to do, what we're going to focus on. We have the choice to live a life of peace. He's offering us that peace if we will simply choose. Years and years ago, I'm an old man, so years and years ago, um, I saw a t-shirt that said these words on it. No Jesus, no peace. No Jesus, no peace. Maybe it's dated, I don't know. But like I said, I'm an old man. So this, a couple weeks ago, I was offered Medicare, for those of you who know what that means. Um, <laughs> I told the young man, dude, I'm 50. I'm not 65 yet. But, folks, that, that's what... That's what life's all about. If we know Jesus, we can know peace in this life. But if there is no Jesus in our life, there will be no peace either. The last thing that Jesus told his disciples before he was arrested and taken to be tried and crucified is found in John 16, verse 33. And he said this, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Do you know Jesus? 
If you don't, you need to know him today. And if you know him, are you choosing to live a life of peace day by day? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time in your word today. Lord, thank you so much that the prophecies of uh, 700 years prior to the birth of Christ came true and that you were in control of all things. And Father, I just thank you so much for the peace that he brings to this world. And I look forward to that day of eternal peace with you. But Lord, help me have internal peace today as I trust in him day by day. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.